Cage 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, March 30th, 2010, Cardiovascular Fundamentals. We are moving from the neuro neuromuscular system to our next major system. Okay, so moving on to cardiovascular. Um, we have our fourth quiz, which will be on the cardiovascular system a week from Thursday, I believe it's scheduled. Okay? So there'll be this week's lecture today and Thursday and the next Tuesday's lecture. So there'll be three lectures of cardiovascular that'll be on that quiz. Okay? All right. What's the primary purpose or function of the cardiovascular system? What, what does it do for us? What's that? Uh, it uses blood, but it, the purpose of it is not to circulate blood or exchange blood. It's oxygen. Key word or key thing there is oxygen. Okay. So the cardiovascular system's role is oxygen delivery. We are large, complex organisms. We can't take in oxygen uh, easily and deliver it to all the tissues in the body that need it. So we have to have a, a, a specific process to do that. Um, so that's its main function. It does a variety of other things for us. What else do we use our cardiovascular system for? What does it do for us? Pardon? Anything else cardiovascular system does? Pardon? Gets rid of carbon dioxide. So in this case, we not only it helps us bring in oxygen and deliver an important molecule to those tissues, it also helps us get rid of some waste. Uh, in this case, carbon dioxide could be considered a waste gas. Okay, what else? Transport nutrients such as? What do we transport in the blood that we use for energy by tissues? Pardon? Uh, no, we already talked about oxygen, but a specific nutrients that we metabolize for energy. Glucose. Okay, blood glucose. So we, uh, we transport glucose through the body from the gut. You know, you eat. Uh, you transport that glucose that you absorb to different tissues in the body, body like muscle cells. Okay, what other nutrients do we transport in the blood? Fats, okay, in what form do we transport fat? I know that was on the first exam. Triglycerides, okay, and more, uh, there are triglycerides, but also what specific form do we talk about that we metabolize fats? Free fatty acids, okay. What's another very common form of fat that we transport around in the blood that we use as a marker for health? Cholesterol, okay, different forms of cholesterol, High-density lipoprotein, those are lipoproteins. They're, the lipo is the fat part. The protein is a, is a uh, protein portion of the, that fat molecule. Not, well, not the fat molecule, of the cholesterol. Okay. Um, so we got carbohydrates and fats. What other nutrients do we transport around? Proteins in what form? Amino acids. Okay. Uh, we also have some plasma proteins. All right, so we transport nutrients. What else does the cardiovascular system do for us? Regulates what? Regulates body fluid. Okay, it's a it's an important reservoir for fluid in the body, and it's important an important reservoir for uh, water movement to tissues. 
Okay, so very important for fluid regulation. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. What else? What else does a cardiovascular system do for us? Does, is it used as a communication system within the body in any fashion? How? Hormones. Okay, hormones. They're typically secreted by endocrine glands into the blood. Those hormones circulate around the body where they then interact with receptors on different tissues. Okay, so it's a communication system. What else? It's going to be 80 degrees on Thursday. Thermoregulation. Okay, um, that's one of the reasons I include the thermoregulation section in the cardiovascular system section because we make very heavy use of our cardiovascular system to help us maintain our inappropriate body temperature, particularly when it's hot, when we're overheating. Okay? So we'll talk about that. All right? Primary purpose or function is oxygen delivery. Okay? On the quiz, when you see that question, yeah. maybe I should turn this off for the pe people that aren't here. <laughs> for the people, for... for the quiz, when you see that question, don't say circulate blood. Okay? Bec <laughs> so we all know the answer to the first question, right? Excellent. Okay. All right. The cardiovascular system works in conjunction with the pulmonary system. Okay? Because we have to have a way of getting oxygen molecules from out here in the atmosphere, environment, into the body. That's the job of the pulmonary system. And so then it interfaces very carefully with the cardiovascular system. So you will sometimes see this term uh, cardiopulmonary system indicating that the, the, two of, the two systems working together. All right, three major system components. We've got the heart. And what's the heart's job? Within the, the role of the cardiovascular system to deliver oxygen, what's the role of the heart? What does it do? It's the pump. Okay? It provides the motive force to move the next thing, which is the blood. That's the, the, the fluid medium that we carry the oxygen in. Okay? And then the blood vessels are arteries, small arteries, arterioles, capillaries, venules, veins all act as the transportation network or, or system, okay? We'll talk about each of these components. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on heart anatomy. You guys have had anatomy already, and you'll have more of this uh, later. Um, how, how, how big's the heart on average for a person? Yeah, the rough guideline is people say it's about the size of your fist, okay? And um, it's... A very specific type of muscle that is very similar to skeletal muscle has a lot of characteristics that are very similar to skeletal muscle, but it has some characteristics of its own that are that are unique to the myocardium. Okay, um, so I'm going to kind of skip through the anatomy part and get to the cardiac cycle, just to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of the 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 blood flow. Okay, here's superior vena cava, inferior vena cava. So this is blood returning from the body, comes back to the right atrium. Okay, blood from the right atrium goes down through this valve right here into the right ventricle. Okay, then when the ventricles contract, blood goes out through the pulmonary arteries 
and go to the lungs. So that's our pulmonary circulation. Comes back through the pulmonary veins. Here's the pulmonary veins up here. And they join in here into the left atrium. Blood goes from the left atrium down to the left ventricle. Out through the aorta. What are the first branches off of the aorta? The first little blood vessels that come off the aorta? Coronary arteries. Okay, and then the next branches that come off of the aorta, carotid arteries, okay? And so then everything branches and goes out to this systemic circulation. Make sure you've got a very good concept, understanding of that, that flow. All right, the cardiac cycle. We've got, uh, the, the heart really is what we call a two-cycle pump. Okay, and that it's got a, a, a phase where it is relaxed and those chambers are filling with blood and it's got a phase where it is active and those, uh, the muscles in the wall of those chambers are contracting and generating force. Okay, and recognize when we talk about these two phases, we're mostly talking about the ventricles. Okay, but the heart is effectively divided, uh, superior and inferior, into two small pumps on the top the atria and two larger pumps on the bottom, the ventricles, okay? Um, each has diastole and systole, but when we talk about these two phases, we're typically talking about the ventricles. All right, so we've got this diastole, this relaxation phase or filling phase, where the ventricular muscle is relaxed and blood is flowing from the atria into the ventricles, okay? Then we start the phase of contraction or systole, and that's where we get the term systolic blood pressure. And uh, initially, this is, this is referred to as the isovolumetric contraction phase because essentially what happens is the ventricles start to contract, and if there is blood in this ventricle right here, and this muscle starts to contract and squeeze on the blood that's in there, what happens to the pressure inside the ventricle? It's going to go up. We got we got a, a fluid-filled cavity. We start to squeeze on it like this, and pressure inside that ventricle is going to go up. Okay. Um, initially, the pressure in here is not as high as the pressure out here in the aorta, and so if the pressure here is not greater than out here, then this valve right here will not open. Okay, so the heart is generating force until the pressure gets high enough for this valve to pop open and the blood to come rushing out. So initially there's this isovolumetric phase, it's like an isometric contraction, and then eventually you get pressure, intraventricular pressure high enough for this valve to open up, and this is the ventricular ejection period where now we've generated enough force here this, this valve pops open and a quantity of the blood that was in the ventricle now gets pushed out into the aorta, okay? Um, then this ventricle relaxes and as it relaxes, initially, now that we've pushed fluid out and this muscle starts to relax, what happens to the pressure inside? What happens to intraventricular pressure? We've pushed blood out. Now this ventricle starts to relax. It goes down. Okay. 
when this pressure gets low enough, and it's lower than the pressure here in the atria, the atrium, this valve will pop open and blood will flow into here. Okay? So, diastole, relaxation, filling phase, systole is the contraction and ejection phase. They're roughly, when you're, when you're at rest, when you're at rest, the diastolic phase is roughly about two-thirds of the length of time of the whole cardiac cycle. The systolic phase is about one-third. Okay? So the relaxation filling phase is slower, and then contraction phase is faster. Relaxation phase is slower. Contraction phase is faster. Okay? About two-thirds, one-third. All right. Uh, we'll, and we'll come back to some, some uh, interesting things about the heart in a bit. Let's talk about blood for a moment. If you take a sample of blood from somebody, put it into a centrifuge, uh, or put it in a test tube, and then put it in a centrifuge and spin it around, um, what will happen is the more dense cellular components will pack into the bottom of the test tube, and the less dense watery component will remain at the top. Uh, so we've got what's referred to as the cellular component of blood down here, and that is comprised mostly of red blood cells or erythrocytes. There are also, and usually when you do this, you can see a little, a little white line right there that's referred to as this buffy coat, but it's a little, little white line, and it's actually the white blood cells or the leukocytes. Uh, then we also have platelets in there. So these are the formed elements or the cellular component of of blood. Then above that is the watery component, which is mostly water, but there's other things in there as well. Uh, for example, if, you, if there's glucose in the blood, you'll find glucose molecules up here, um, etc. Um, and so we refer to that as the plasma. Okay. Typically, for an average person, the cellular component makes up about somewhere between 40 and 45 percent of the total blood and the plasma makes up about 55 to 60 percent. Alright, so what do we call that percentage right here? There's a specific term for the percentage of our total blood volume that is made up of the cellular component. Hematocrit. Okay? Hematocrit. Let me say that again. That's the percentage of your blood that is made up of the cellular component. All right, so here's the cellular component down here. If this was exactly 100, this would be 45 and this would be 55. So this would be 45% of the blood volume. Okay? Why isn't our, it, it, well, in what part of the blood is it that carries the oxygen? Hemoglobin, which is found in what part of the blood? The erythrocytes, the red blood cells. Okay? Well, how come our blood isn't 80 or 90% red cells if we want to be more efficient in carrying oxygen? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it, wouldn't, ah, what was that? It would be too thick. Okay, This is a physiological characteristic that's a trade-off. If you make the blood too 
concentrated with red cells, you can carry lots of oxygen, but it's too thick to move efficiently through the body. If a fluid gets really thick and doesn't move very easily, what's the term we, we call that? Starts with a V. Viscosity. Okay, viscosity. So if your hematocrit gets too high, you can carry lots of oxygen, but it, the blood is too viscous, it doesn't circulate very well. Okay, well, so instead we want blood to circulate really easily, so instead maybe we'll have 10 or 20% of red cells instead of 40 or 50. Why is that not a good idea? It's easy to transport, but you don't move a lot of oxygen. Okay, so you've got a nice balance between red cells and viscosity. We, we want to maximize our oxygen carrying capacity, but we've still got to be able to circulate this blood without it forming clots and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, all right, so there's our components we've already talked about. Erythrocytes, there's our hemoglobin that binds the oxygen. Hemoglobin can also bind carbon dioxide, which we'll see in, in a couple of lectures. Okay, this balance. Um, we've got a physiological pro process for maintaining an appropriate balance of red cells. We also have a process for maintaining an appropriate balance of um, plasma volume. And we'll do that one in just a minute. This process is called erythropoiesis. And uh, what, what's a typical lifespan of a red blood cell? 120 days, all right? Yeah, about four months or so. So every, every day you've got literally uh, hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of thousands of red blood cells that are dying off and being excreted. And so we've got to replace those red cells. Where, where do erythrocytes come from in your body? Bone marrow, okay? Um, when you're young with kids, a lot, it's mostly bone marrow that's in long bones, like your femur. But by the time you get to be an adult, most of your bone marrow is coming from flat bones, like your sternum, um, uh, and particularly your pelvic bones. Okay? So there's a process by which these immature red blood cells that are found in the bone marrow are stimulated to mature and then be put out into the bloodstream. And that's the process. It's erythropoiesis. Okay? Now... You have some things happen with the body where the body has, uh, uh, for some period of time, a reduced oxygen content. Okay? Let's say you go to Red Cross and you donate a unit of blood. Okay? That's about 500 milliliters of blood. And so you've given up some plasma volume, but you've also given up a fair number of red blood cells. So now, for some period of time, your body is not carrying as much oxygen. Right? So the amount of oxygen in the blood is reduced. That is sensed by cells in the kidney. Okay, your kidneys get lots of blood flow, lots of blood flow, because the job of the kidneys is to do what? What's the kidneys? Filter what? Filter the blood. Okay, so it gets lots of blood flow. So these cells are well positioned uh, to see lots of blood flow and to see that there's less oxygen in the blood. So these kidney cells secrete a substance called erythropoietin, which is a hormone-like substance. This substance circulates through the blood, stimulates these 
cells in the bone marrow to mature more red cells, they get dumped out into the blood and you start to increase your red cell count. Okay? So then that brings your, uh, increases the amount of oxygen carrying capacity back up. So this process is now, what kind of feedback is it over to here? If the original stimulus was reduced oxygen, we've had some kind of effect that, that brings up our oxygen carrying content. What kind of feedback mechanism is this? Negative. Okay? Uh, what are some other things? You donate blood or other blood loss. You cut yourself and bleed a whole bunch. What, what other things might cause us to for, uh, have less oxygen carried in the body that would stimulate this process? Pardon? Yeah, and, and, and what do we call it? She said, what happens if your hemoglobin is low? There's, there are specific diseases that result in reduced hemoglobin. Anemic, okay, when you're anemic, they measure two things, your hematocrit and your hemoglobin. And typically your hematocrit is low and your hemoglobin content is low. Hopefully that will stimulate the body to go through this process, Okay. Uh, what about if you go to altitude? You go out west. To <laughs> that was my answer. I'll give you credit for it. I could tell. I could see. I could see altitude coming out. I could see altitude right across your forehead. All right. All right. You go. Um, uh, the rec center has some great uh, spring break skiing trips. You know, they go out west, uh, Steamboat Springs or something like that. So you spend a week out there at, uh, you know, usually the. Village where you stay is at you know eight or nine thousand feet in altitude, uh, and then when you go up on the mountain and ski, you're you know you can be up over eleven thousand feet. You're exposed to that kind of altitude for you know four, five, six days. Your body is literally carrying less oxygen, which we'll talk about you know more specifically down the road. Some that stimulates your kidneys, erythropoietic process to mature more red cells. Okay, so blood loss, altitude. What else? The name of this class is Physiology of Exercise. <laughs> Exercise. For some period of time when you are exercising, okay, at least on the venous side, because your muscles are using more oxygen, on the venous side, your oxygen content is reduced. Okay? And so one of the one of the adaptive responses that we get, particularly with aerobic exercise, is it stimulates erythropoiesis and we actually increase our production of red blood cells. Okay? Alright, so exercise is a very potent stimulator of this process. Now, um, that's part of the equation. That's the red cells. We also have to consider the plasma volume because plasma volume can change pretty rapidly. Uh, and just, you know, don't panic over this, but just to illustrate, and let me show you. If we start up here and we do things that result in de decreased plasma volume, okay, plasma volume goes down. Um, for example, uh, if you uh, are dehydrated, you don't drink enough for some period of time, your plasma volume will go down. If you exercise, Okay. Early on in exercise, the, the, there's a decrease in plasma volume. And if you continue exercise, particularly if it's hot and humid, and you sweat a lot, your plasma volume goes down even more. 
Okay, so this results in several things. One is if you reduce plasma volume, you reduce your blood volume, uh, your uh, atrial pressures are down some. Okay, in this case, if you're, if you're sweating off lots of fluid, and you, is there stuff in sweat besides just water? Salt. Salt, okay, sodium, potassium, chloride. But if you're losing water at a faster rate than you're losing those electrolytes, what happens to the electrolyte balance in your body? So water's going out faster than the electrolytes. What happens to your, it's more concentrated, okay? So when your body fluids get more concentrated, that is a signal for this process as well. And essentially, two parts of this uh, are related to this plasma volume. Uh, one is water retention. So there's a stimulus to our, our pituitary gland to secrete uh, anti-diuretic hormone. Okay? Uh, when, we, when something is a diuretic, what does that make you do? What's that? It makes you urinate more. So an anti-diuretic hormone would retain more water. Okay? Then we also, over here, from the adrenal gland, we secrete aldosterone. That's a hormone we talked about, one of our steroid hormones that we talked about last week. Um, and in this case, instead of being a muscle-building steroid, what it does is it acts on the kidney to help us retain salt. And if you retain salt, then water will follow the salt or, and stay in the body. So, so these two processes help us retain salt and retain more water, and our plasma volume goes up. Okay? All right. Um, just quickly on blood vessels, just, just items of note. In fact, let me get to... Well, yeah, let me go back. All right, we've got the aorta and large arteries. These have lots of elastic tissue in them because when the heart contracts with force and pushes blood out into these, these blood vessels, they tend to swell like this to accommodate that fluid. And then if they're elastic, what will they tend to do? Return to normal. And that helps both accommodate the fluid that's being forced out of the heart and it helps propel the blood down the system. Okay? So uh, a common feature here in aorta and large arteries is elastic tissue. When we get down here to smaller arteries and particularly arterioles, one of the things we're interested in is this smooth muscle that's found in the, uh, the walls of these uh, arteries because the smooth muscle will allow these uh, arteries and arterioles, if they contract, it results in constriction. Or if, they, if it contract, it results in constriction. And if they relax, it results in dilation. Okay? Um, then our, when we go into our capillaries, we've got these uh, pre-capillary uh, sphincters that we can close off to reduce flow through capillary beds or we can open up to allow flow. And those are a little better illustrated here. So basically blood flow is coming down through here. And if you contract these smooth muscles and cut this off, you can bypass this whole capillary bed. But if this is a muscle that's starting to exercise, and we want to get blood flow and oxygen delivery to this muscle, we can relax and open up this channel and blood can now flow down through here. Okay? So, now, 
Very important point. Smooth muscle in the cardiovascular system. Okay, because this is going to be exactly opposite when we get to pulmonary. Smooth muscle in the cardiovascular system. When stimulated by the sympathetic nervous system, causes constriction. Let me say that again. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation of smooth muscle in the cardiovascular system causes constriction. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation of smooth muscle in the cardiovascular system causes constriction. Okay, two different prefixes. Vaso refers to arteries. Vasoconstriction, vasodilation refers to arteries. Veno constriction, venodilation would refer to veins. Okay? So you can Here's, here's smooth muscle in uh, arteries, arterioles. So if there is sympathetic nervous system stimulation, it will cause vasoconstriction. Okay, if you remove that sympathetic nervous system stimulation, it results in vasodilation. Down here, I wish they'd have drawn some smooth muscle because there is smooth muscle in the walls of veins, just not as much as arteries. And same thing. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation would get venoconstriction and uh, removal of that sympathetic nervous system stimulation would result in venodilation. Okay? When is our sympathetic nervous system active? When do we get big sympathetic nervous system stimulation? Stress. Right? Fight or flight. Exactly. The fight or flight. Uh, this is a... Um, a response of the body to some sort of stress where the body gears up to either you know, uh, withstand or fight that challenge or to run like hell. All right? Maybe it's passed on to us by, by evolutionary from cavemen who had to run from saber-toothed tigers or something like that. Um, I don't know. Uh, in, in our society, a lot of the stress is psychological, right? You're driving to school, you're trying to come down to you know, the, the, the connector, somebody cuts you off, you're mad at them, and they flip you off, you know, and you're sitting there, and the problem is you have this physiological response. What are some of the physiological responses of this fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system stimulation? You sweat. Does your heart rate go up? Does your heart beat stronger? Does it pound? Yes. All right, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the heart beats with greater force. It beats faster. You sweat. Your pupils dilate. Your hair stands up on your arms. Right? You get certain hormones released, our stress hormones, particularly epinephrine, norepinephrine. Okay? So these are all physiological systems that gear the body up for some kind of physical action. One of the health issues in our society is that a lot of times it's psychological stress and now you're trapped in the car in traffic and you can't do anything about it, okay? So you sit there and stew in the, uh, your blood pressure is elevated, right? Okay, 
Uh, th these are all f are physical responses, and if you can do something physical, then that, that allows you to respond appropriately. Exercise, physical activity, is a stress. And so we see lots of the same things. Does your heart beat faster when you exercise? Yes. Does it beat stronger? Yes. Do, uh, do you sweat? Yes. Does your blood pressure go up? Okay, so exercise is a stress. So we'll, um, and so there is some activity of the sympathetic nervous system. So we'll talk about that. Uh, that'll be an important factor in how we control blood flow, okay, to certain areas of the body. So we'll come back to that. And that's what all these things are. These are, this is like the aorta and large arteries. There's lots of uh, elastic tissue, and, and we can see we've got smooth muscle. Um, Key feature of capillaries is that they are very thin-walled uh, blood vessels so that they can, th and this is the spot where we get exchange of gases, we get exchange of nutrients uh, and things like that through the capillaries. You can see they're, it's basically just an um, endothelium, no smooth muscle, no elastic tissue, none of that stuff. And then when we see veins, uh, we do have smooth muscle. In, in the walls of these veins, okay? Not a whole lot of elastic tissue, but we do have smooth muscle. And that'll become important uh, a little bit down the road. Okay, now we come to the heart. It acts as a positive pressure pump in order to move fluid from one place to another place. What's that? <laughs> if you want to consider that to be apple juice, that probably would, might keep me out of trouble with, with some folks. All right. So in this case, we've got a, a container filled with fluid. We want to move this fluid from the container to another location. And so we have this device on top. And, we'll, and, and not that I'm expecting you have experience, but you've probably seen some people do this. Uh, <laughs> how is it that we, we uh, get the fluid from this container into here? The little pump thing up here, right? So what are we doing? When we pump this thing right here, we're doing what? We're generating pressure, okay? And we're generating positive pressure. We're increasing the pressure inside of this container, which then allows the fluid to be forced into these other containers, okay? That's exactly what the heart does. You didn't know the heart was a, like a pump on a beer keg, right? It's exactly what the heart does, all right? Uh, the, the, the main pressure-generating part of the heart uh, the right ventricle certainly does this, but the left ventricle is the main pressure producer. Okay? It will generate enough pressure to push blood through the system. Now, it does get some help on this side over here in terms of venous return. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's basically the idea. The left ventricle has got to produce enough pressure, and it is, it is a positive pressure pump. You fill the ventricle with blood. The ventricle contracts on that fluid, squeezing on it, and that increases pressure. And it increases the pressure enough to propel or push the blood through the circulatory system. Okay? Now, again, it's a two-cycle pump. It's pressure, relax. Pressure, relax. And so when we see our, um, our blood pressure... Well, the first of all, over here is in the left ventricle. We, we literally will have big swings in pressure inside the left ventricle, okay? Because it's going to fill. So while it's filling, the pressure is really low. 
and then as the ventricle contracts, pressure is going to go real high. Blood is forced out into the atria, and then the ventricle relaxes. So we get big swings in pressure. Okay, so we get systole and then diastole. Systole and diastole. Okay, but when we measure pressure out uh, in the body, outside of the heart, we don't get those big swings in pressure, which is a good thing. Okay, why is that a good thing not to have big changes in blood pressure actually out in the blood vessels? What's that? One is the capillaries are fragile, and we have some ways of protecting that by what we call the resistance vessels. But let's think about, um, what's the first branches off of the aorta? Coronary arteries. What are the next branches? Carotid. Uh, does the brain need a pretty steady flow of oxygen? Yes. So if this kind of pressure difference happened in the carotid arteries, what would happen? You'd be fine. You'd not be fine. You'd be fine. You'd not be fine. <laughs> right? Do we, do we want those kind of changes in pressure? No. no. All right, so how is it that we maintain smaller changes in pressure right here in these uh, aorta and these large arteries? You push this blood out into the aorta, and what does the aorta do? It, what's that? Yeah. Is the, is the aorta a hard pipe? No. What, what does it have in the walls? Elastic tissue and smooth muscle. So if you shove this big amount of blood into the aorta, it's going to swell to retain it. And then if it is stretched and swells, what does it do? It then returns back to its normal shape. Okay? So this is a characteristic of the aorta where when, you're, when your left ventricle contracts and you shove blood out into the aorta, it swells to contain it and then slowly returns back to its normal shape and that helps continue to propel blood down through the system. So it actually, it sort of absorbs some of the pressure and then slowly releases it. And then by the time you're back down to here, the next heart, the next systole occurs and, and you're back up again. Okay? So that helps kind of maintain more of a steady blood flow. No, the, the 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 aorta is more referred to as a and not a resistance vessel. That I'm not following. Yeah. The 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 resistance vessels are more down here, these small arteries and precapillary sphincters, the aorta is more what's referred to as a capacitance vessel, which means it can absorb this blood flow and then move it on down through the system. Okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this... There probably should be right in here aorta instead of resistance vessels. Yeah, that's, that is a little misleading. So that's... That, I, oh, I didn't even notice that. You know, and if you notice, it says left ventricle and large arteries. The, the aorta is a little bit different right here because it, it swells and then pushes blood down through the system. What, what is arteriosclerosis? 
Hardening of the arteries, right? And it's something that happens when you get older, and literally what happens is these blood vessels lose some of their ability to stretch and return to shape. Okay, So it becomes a little more like a hard pipe instead of a flexible tube. And so what typically also happens with people as they get older in terms of their blood pressure? It, it gets higher because if this aorta is not able to swell to accept this, this uh, blood, if it stays narrow and you jam the same amount of blood into, that, into a smaller space, what happens to the pressure? It goes up. Okay, so that's one of the reasons that we, uh, our blood pressure gradually creeps up or climbs as we get older if we don't, um, uh, if these large arteries start to get more stiff. Okay? All right, so at any rate, where we measure pressure, blood pressure, is typically in a relatively large artery out in the arm, and we know that we measure a pressure at a peak, which is systolic pressure, and we measure pressure at a lower end, which is our diastolic pressure, okay? Then, um, uh, one of the things that happens in here somewhere between the small arteries and these precapillary sphincters is that we control the diameter so that the blood going into those capillaries is relatively low pressure because in these capillaries, we don't want high pressure. They're very thin-walled, and if we put blood at high pressure in there, these, these vessels are going to spring a leak. Okay, So that's how we, we, we sort of clamp the hose down a little bit here to keep the pressure elevated back here, but pressure drops. Now, pressure drops quite a bit in these uh, capacitance or um, uh, the vessels or the veins, and in a bit we'll talk about some help we get in generating more pressure to get blood back to the heart. Okay. All right. So we talked about systolic, diastolic, and I'll talk about mean pressure in just a moment. Now, once again, blood pressure is one of those things that we've got to find some happy medium. Okay, because blood pressure that's too high is not good. But blood pressure also that's too low is not good either. Because if you think about blood pressure, what it is, it's the motive force for getting blood to flow through the system. So I kind of, uh, uh, if blood pressure is too low, we're not going to have enough pressure, driving pressure, to push blood through the body. And we refer to that as hypotension. Uh, in the exercise science field, you'll encounter that in some cases where people have what's called post-exertional hypotension. Okay, Fancy term for what? After exercise, people, what, what happens? They get dizzy or lightheaded. Okay, Because when you're exercising, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to open up lots of capillary beds to increase blood flow to those exercising muscles. And then sometimes when people stop, they don't get adequate blood flow back to the body, uh, back to the heart, and then therefore not enough back to the head, and they get dizzy or lightheaded. Okay? So hypotension. Uh, this also happens sometimes if you've been laying on the couch for, you know, an hour or a weekend, and uh, your doorbell rings and you stand up quickly, right? 
see some little dark spots and, and, uh, and, and you kind of get dizzy? Okay, well, what has happened is when you're, when you're lying down, your body is distributing blood flow fairly easily, and it's easy to move blood back to the heart when you're lying down because it's all at the same level. Okay, but then when you stand up, uh, due to gravity, uh, blood wants to go where? It falls towards your feet. Okay, and it falls away from your heart and towards your feet. Now your body will make some adjustments that we'll talk about to try to get pressure back up, but if you do this quickly enough, then blood falls away from your head towards your feet, you don't get adequate amount of blood flow to the brain, and you get dizzy or lightheaded. Okay? You'll usually compensate fairly quickly, but a lot of times it takes a second or two, and that's that you know, couple of seconds where you feel a little dizzy. Okay? In the of syncope, when you can't get up back, that's, fast, right? She used the term syncope, which is losing consciousness or passing out, um, and that can be one of the reasons. Okay, um, the, the person's not getting enough venous return, and it, and it does not matter how many times a minute your heart beats, if the heart's not filling with blood, it's not generating cardiac output. And if you don't generate cardiac output, then you're not getting blood flow to the brain, and that's when you can get dizzy or lightheaded. Okay? All right. Um, now, that can be... Um, Okay, then, uh, all right, so too low of pressure is not a good thing because we're not going to get adequate blood flow, and too high of a pressure is not a good thing. Now, it could be a problem on an acute basis. Uh, we talked about lifting weights and some of those really high pressures we saw that could actually provoke some kind of uh, injury in an individual. Most likely with hypertension, uh, what happens with people is that it's a chronic problem over time, that their blood pressure is elevated, um, every hour of every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, year after year, and it's, it's sort of analogous to, um, uh, you know, if you overinflate the tires on your car, it will cause uneven wear, and your car tires will wear out faster, and that's sort of the same thing, same thing here. Yeah, they recommend that when you lift weights, you exhale. Yeah. That, that helps the pressure not to go so high? It does. Um, and it, we talked about that a couple... La uh, sometime recently, but that's a Valsalva maneuver where, um, and really they, what they've looked at is intrathoracic pressures, and, and it's a problem when people take a big breath, hold it, and then strain real hard because it makes that intrathoracic pressure go up, and the heart sits right in the middle of the thorax. And so if you've got a big high-pressure zone right here, it's difficult for blood to work its way back towards the heart. And that's one of the reasons that people can get dizzy or lightheaded when they're straining against a really heavy, to lift a real heavy weight. So that's one of the reasons that it's recommended that you exhale and let some of that pressure out so the thoracic pressure goes down while you're lifting. Okay. Um, you guys did blood pressure in lab on Friday, right? Didn't you do uh, heart rate and BP? All right, so, you know, the basic idea is we, we wrap this cuff uh, around the arm. You pump it up to a high enough pressure that it cuts off the blood flow in that artery. So you basically hear no sound of, of blood flowing through that artery. Then as you slowly start to let the pressure off, blood eventually gets to the point where the pressure is high enough that it, that it forces some blood through that small opening and you get 
turbulent blood flow, and that's what you're hearing with those blood pressure sounds. So when, this, when the pressure is high enough that it just forces blood through, and you can just start to hear this turbulent flow, that's the systolic pressure. And you start to hear certain, the certain heart sounds. Then as you continue to let the pressure off, eventually there's no pressure on this artery at all, and the blood flows smoothly, and you don't hear the turbulent flow anymore. Now, there, there are some different sounds, but the basic ones, particularly when you're first learning how to do it, is that when you first start to hear sound, that's the systolic pressure, and then when that sound disappears or goes away, that's the diastolic pressure. Okay? So that's, how, that's the, what's going on with those sounds. Um, not so much for this class, but certainly for subsequent ones that you're going to have, you should be pretty familiar with blood pressure classifications. Again, kind of our mythical average, 120, 80. Uh, essentially what you want to know is that the borderline is right around 140 for systolic and 90 for diastolic. Okay, if someone has a resting blood pressure that is 140 consistently, then that's too much. And they would, uh, would typically want to go to their physician and seek some kind of intervention to reduce their blood pressure. Uh, and similarly, diastolic is an issue as well. If their diastolic is consistently 90 or higher, then that's you know, borderline or stage one hypertension, and they would want to seek some kind of intervention to reduce their blood pressure. So be familiar with what's you know, kind of that uh, average and the borderline, 140 and 90. Okay, mean arterial pressure. Um, real simply with mean arterial pressure, uh, let me, easy way to kind of go after that is, blood pressure is never exactly 120 and, and, and 80. As you can see, when you were measuring pressure, if these are done with a, a pressure transducer that's actually inside the artery, through the whole cardiac cycle, pressure is constantly changing. Okay, And so when, when, when we measure pressure the way uh, we or typically think about it, we're looking at what the highest pressure is and what the lowest pressure is. We also maybe want to have a way of, of figuring out what the sort of mean or average pressure is throughout the cardiac cycle. Okay, and so it's done with this this uh, notion of mean arterial pressure. You take the diastolic pressure. Well, first of all, you take the systolic pressure, subtract the diastolic, and you take one third of that, and then you add that to the diastolic pressure. Okay, so we're not just going to take systolic and add it to diastolic and divide by two to get an average, because do we spend more, does the heart spend more time in diastole or systole? Does the heart spend more time diastole? And it spends about how much time in diastole? About two-thirds. And about how much time in systole? Okay. So over the cardiac cycle, more of the average should be represented by diastole instead of systole, right? So that's, that's why we do this formula. So it's basically, just know that this, the two important concepts. One is, this illustrates kind of a rough 
mean over the course of a cardiac cycle a rough average of what the pressure is. And the second thing is that we give more weight to the diastolic pressure because more of our time is spent at rest in diastole than in systole. Okay? And that's just an example of how to calculate it. I'm not going to go through that. Okay. I sit in my office during office hours and nobody ever comes by to see me. So, you know, I get bored and I start doing stuff like this. All right, if you're sitting there at rest all day long, your heart beats 72 times a minute. There's 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day. If you do nothing but stay at rest, if you lay on the couch all day long and don't get too excited about anything, you maintain a, <laughs> a resting heart rate for an entire day, your heart's going to beat in excess of 100,000 times. Dang. Okay. Uh, how big is the heart? About the size of your fist. When does the heart rest? It never rests. Well, hopefully not for 80, 90 years or so, right? It does rest during diastole, but it's got to contract again in, in a fraction of a second, right? So it really doesn't rest much. So that's a pretty impressive acting pump, okay? 100,000 times a day if you don't do anything but just lay on the couch. Now, uh, we'll talk about this in a bit, but um, each time the heart beats, it, the left ventricle will pump out about 70 milliliters of blood. So if we look at that over the course of the day, um, there's about a, a, there's a thousand milliliters in a liter. If we do that math, your heart moves over 7,000 liters of blood a day, and that's if you don't even do anything. You just lay on the couch. Think, think about a liter. Think about a two-liter Coke bottle. Your heart moves about 3,500 of those a day of fluid. Okay? And that's just resting. So it's a, it's a pretty astonishing uh, uh, little pump. Oh, well, you know, so it was another boring day. <laughs> so I multiplied that over by the course of a year and then by the average lifespan in the United States. And over the course of your lifetime, if you live the a average uh, lifespan, uh, your heart will crank out over 3 billion beats. Okay? Very impressive. Now, Neil Armstrong. Great American... American hero, war hero, uh, astronaut, first man on the moon, not a good physiologist. Um, as part of the astronaut training, they had to do lots of rigorous um, uh, uh, physical training, and he was notorious for hating to exercise. He was a pilot. He liked to fly. He did not like all the training. So at a press conference one time, he said, I believe every human has a finite number of heartbeats, and I don't intend to waste any of mine exercising. Okay. So, we, and, and if we've calculated this, we figure that's, that could be in the neighborhood of about 3 billion beats in a lifetime, right? So, so his contention was, why should I go out and run for an hour and, and, and crank up my heart rate and waste those beats when I could be, you know, sitting around having a beer or something? Well, let's find out how good of a cardiovascular physiologist uh, uh, Neil Armstrong was. Okay. We're going to do aerobic exercise for 30 minutes a day. So during that 30 minutes, we're going to crank our heart rate up to 150. Is that reasonable for, heart, for aerobic exercise training? 
150 beats a minute for 30 minutes. Is that horrifically hard? No. no. So that's pretty reasonable. So for that 30 minutes, our heart rate has gone up to 4,500 beats. So or we've, we've uh, uh, gotten 4,500 beats in that 30 minutes. Okay? Now, what is one of the typical responses of resting heart rate, though, to regular aerobic exercise? It goes down. Would it be reasonable if somebody did 30 minutes of aerobic exercise for their resting heart rate to go from 72, say, down to 60? Not, not uncommon at all. So now, our resting heart rate is 60 beats a minute, and there's 60 minutes in an hour, and, in, and we're, we're accepting the 30 minutes that we're doing the exercise, but for the other 23 and a half hours a day, uh, now we're only beating 84,600 times. You add those together, and that's less than 90,000. What did we get when we just rested all day? It was over 100,000, right? So basically, you're saving about 15,000 beats a day if you're engaged in regular aerobic exercise. And so the sedentary person, they're going to reach their 3 billion heartbeats in 78 years. But because we're the people that are more aerobically fit are saving 15 or 20,000 beats a day, you're not going to reach your 3 billion heartbeats uh, until 92 years. So is Neil Armstrong right? No. No. All right. So aerobic exercise actually saves you heartbeats instead of wastes them. So, and you're all thinking, man, he's has some really boring days in his office. Okay. So you got to come by and come by and see me more often. Keep keep me from the madness. Uh, okay. So here's here's how we're going to pursue this next couple of uh, sections of the cardiovascular system. Um, the main role or function of the cardiovascular system is to do what? Deliver oxygen. Deliver oxygen. So the gas of interest is oxygen. What does this V with the dot over it stand for? Volume. Okay, so this is our physiology shorthand. What's the term for this? VO2 or oxygen consumption, right? So... We are going to look at two components of how the cardiovascular system allows the body to have enough oxygen to maintain the correct level of oxygen consumption. The first part of it is this Q with a dot over it, which is cardiac output. The second part of it is AVO2 difference. This is arterio, or on the arterial side. This is the venous side, and oxygen difference. We're going to have a certain amount of oxygen in the arteries going to the tissues. There's going to be a certain amount of oxygen in the veins going out the other side because we use this term, uh, or you see this term a lot with the venous system, that, that venous blood is deoxygenated. That, that, that kind of typically, the, at least the image I get from that is that it means it has no oxygen in it, which is not accurate. You do have oxygen on the venous side. And so the difference between what's on the arterial side and what's on the venous side is what we've been able to deliver and use by the tissues. Okay, We often refer to this as the central component of oxygen consumption because it's the performance of the central pump, the heart. We often refer to this as the peripheral component over here because it is the ability of the body to deliver oxygen to the tissues and these tissues out here like muscle to take the oxygen out and use it. 
Can you repeat that again? Yes. All of it? No, just the latter part. <laughs> okay. Um, you got the central part, the pump? Okay. This is what we refer to oftentimes as the peripheral, the peripheral part, which is the ability of the body to deliver oxygenated blood to the tissues and the ability of those tissues to take the oxygen out and use it. Okay? Do all tissues have the same capacity to take oxygen out and use it for energy? No. In fact, we've studied two very different types, uh, fast-twitch muscle fiber, slow-twitch muscle fiber. Does one have the capacity to take oxygen out and use it more readily for energy than the other? Which one? Slow-twitch, slow right? Slow-twitch. What, what are the characteristics of slow-twitch muscle fibers that allow it to take out more oxygen and use it for energy in oxidative phosphorylation? More mitochondria? Are the mitochondria bigger? What else? More capillaries, right? More capillaries, greater capillary density. What's the stuff that's in muscle that's similar to the stuff in blood that helps us bind oxygen? Myoglobin. myoglobin. Do, fat, do slow twitch fibers have more myoglobin? Okay, so all those things that help us utilize oxygen or enhanced in certain types of tissues. Okay? All right, now let's, I'm going to go ahead and just continue this for the last few minutes here because I want to make up a little ground because I am one lecture behind. So hopefully you have your cardiac output. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's all online. Okay, so we're at the same, same equation. And this Q with the dot over it is cardiac output. Okay, cardiac output. Here is our equation for cardiac output. It is the product of heart rate and stroke volume. Okay, cardiac output is the product of heart rate and stroke volume. We typically express cardiac output in liters per minute. Liters per minute. So this is how much blood the heart is moving in liters every 60 seconds. All right, and so that's going to be a product of how much the heart pumps out with each beat, which is stroke volume, and how many times the heart beats every minute, heart rate. So you take heart rate, you multiply it by stroke volume, you get your cardiac output. All right, it's kind of the tricky part. We express cardiac output in liters per minute. Actually, let me go back. We know, this is uh, pretty basic, that we express heart rate in beats per minute. A little bit of the tricky part is when you're talking just specifically about stroke volume, we tend to refer to it in milliliters per beat. But because this is, this is done in liters, we have to change this to liters. Okay, and how many milliliters in a liter? A thousand, three decimal places. Okay, so our typical values at rest. These would be typical values at rest for an untrained person. Just kind of uh, uh, John Doe, 
72 beats a minute, roughly around 70 beats a minute for heart rate, and about 70 milliliters, like we talked about earlier. So what this means is when the left ventricle fills and it contracts, it squeezes out about 70 milliliters of blood. Okay? And that's, if you, if you go uh, with your three decimals, one, two, and then add a zero to three, that's 0.07 liters. So if you do the math, 0.07 times 72 is about five liters a minute. That is a very typical resting cardiac output for an average person. What that means is your heart has to circulate, has to pump out about five liters of blood every minute in order for the tissues in your body to get an adequate amount of oxygen. Okay? It's about five liters a minute at rest. All right, think about that. Think about it. That's how big is the heart? You know, it's a pump about this big. You're talking two and a half, uh, two liter Coke bottles of fluid every 60 seconds that it's moving. And that's, that's if you're just sitting at rest, okay? So that's, that's reasonably impress, uh, impressive. Okay, now, cardiac output response to steady state exercise. So you're at rest. You get up, you start walking, and then you, you get to, a, let's say, a jog. And you jog at the same exact steady pace. All right. As you're jogging at this steady pace, what happens to your oxygen consumption? It's going to increase. Okay? Your muscles are, 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 have to produce more force, so they need more energy. If it's a, you know, mostly aerobic-type exercise, you're going to get most of that energy by using what energy system? Which energy system? Oxidative phosphorylation, our aerobic energy system, right? So that means we start to use more oxygen, and then therefore our oxygen demand goes up. Okay? How do we get the oxygen to those exercising muscles? We breathe in more, and then once we get it in our lungs, how do we get it from our lungs to our exercising muscles? Through the circulation. So if the muscles need more oxygen, what's going to have to happen to cardiac output to get that oxygen there? It's got to go up. Okay? And so that's what we see here. Cardiac output's about five liters a minute at rest. You start jogging, steady state. Okay? Cardiac output goes up and then reaches a steady state. If the exercise intensity is pretty steady, then cardiac output is going to get to a steady state because you're providing just the right amount of oxygen. Okay? And then when you stop exercise, oxygen demand falls, cardiac output returns eventually back during recovery back down to resting levels. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, we know, and this one we know because we track heart rate a lot, but we know heart rate, when you start exercising, heart rate climbs, and if it is steady state exercise, your heart rate will stay pretty steady, right? And then when you stop exercising, your heart rate slowly returns back down to resting levels. Okay? Stroke volume does the same thing. If stroke volume is about 70 mils, milliliters, we start increasing exercise intensity, or we, we, we start exercising at a steady state, 
um, our cardiac output goes up, and it goes up because our heart rate goes up, and the amount of blood we pump out with each beat goes up. So we go from about 70 milliliters per beat up to about 100, maybe 110 or so. Okay, so stroke volume climbs as well. Okay, now if we do, uh, let me do it this way. So this is a max test. So this is one of these tests. We start off at low intensity, and every couple of minutes we increase uh, uh, an exercise intensity stage until the person gets to their maximum ability. Okay? So incremental exercise, gradually gaining exercise intensity until the person reaches their max. So here's cardiac output. At rest, we're going to start at about 5 liters a minute. If we increase exercise intensity, we know cardiac output is going to go up. Okay? If we increase exercise intensity in relatively equal increments, what kind of pattern does cardiac output go up in? Relatively equal increments? It is a pretty linear response. Okay. When we did this with oxygen consumption, you went up in pretty equal increments. How did oxygen consumption respond? Pretty much a straight line? Yes. You get to some cardiac output max. We start down here about 5 liters a minute. Any, any clue about what maximum values can be for an average person? Ballpark. No, not quite that high. Average person, average person's probably going to be around 25. Okay, 25 liters per minute. If you take somebody who is a well-trained endurance athlete, somebody who has been used to doing aerobic exercise, a, a lot of it, particularly for a long period of time, it is not unlikely for this to be upwards of 35 liters per minute or potentially slightly more. Okay, Think about that. that. That pump moving 35 liters of blood every 60 seconds. That's a lot. That's a lot of fluid. Okay, that's a lot of fluid. That's a, it's, now we're becoming a, a more impressed with the ability of this pump. Okay, it can, it can really move a lot of fluid. Okay, so uh, typical at rest for most people, and you guys should be familiar with these, you know, within the right ballpark on these, uh, on these values, just so you have a sense of, of what's about right. Uh, it's about five liters a minute at rest. Maximum is around five times that for uh, average folks, six or seven times that for well-trained folks. Okay? 
Now, if we look at... I'm going to come back to heart rate in just a second. Let's go over here to stroke volume. Okay, stroke volume. We start down here about 70 milliliters per beat. If we increase exercise intensity, we already saw earlier that um, stroke volume goes up, and it goes up in a fairly linear fashion like this. The difference with stroke volume, though, is for most people, somewhere around roughly 50% of their VO2 max, what happens to stroke volume is it levels off. It tends to plateau. Okay? And stroke volume max is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 120 to 150 milliliters per beat. Okay? For an average person. It can probably go up in excess of about 200 milliliters per beat for a well-trained person. Okay? So the average person, stroke volume goes up until about 50% of their max, and then it starts to level off. Okay? And, and what we see is the, just the, the chamber of the heart is not big enough to accept and then pump out more fluid. One of the virtues of endurance aerobic exercise training, um, first of all, a person's resting stroke volume is much higher And so their stroke volume during exercise is higher. Okay? And we'll talk about that more down the road. All right, we'll take our average person. We've got a resting heart rate of around 72. What happens to their heart rate when they, uh, with this incremental exercise test? Goes up, right? And what kind of fat? And we, we eventually get to some heart rate max, some kind of maximal heart rate. What kind of pattern does it go up? Pretty much straight line, right? It's not exactly a straight line, but it's, it's pretty close. It's a very linear response. If you go up in equal increments in intensity, you'll get pretty equal increments in heart rate. It's a fairly straight line. We don't show the steady state on there? This is not steady state exercise. Once it goes up, If you take a person, uh, the question was, does it ever get to a steady state in an incremental kind of test like this? Um, if the, it depends on the, the length of the stage of the test. Uh, and, and tests that we use for um, estimating, you know, if it, like we do certain tests like a YMCA cyclergometer test where the stages are like two or three minutes long, uh, it, it, it actually, within the stage, you know, you, you get to a steady state, and then you get to the next stage, and it bumps up to the next level. It, yeah. So if you're wearing a heart rate monitor where you're actually measuring heart rate like every 15 seconds, you'll, you'll, see it, well, you'll see it plateau during that stage. So during the stage where you're walking three miles an hour for three minutes, your, your heart rate will be pretty steady. And as soon as you go to the next stage, it jumps up to the next one, you know, and, and, and you kind of level off. And then you go to the next stage. But if we're just plotting the heart rate at the end of each stage, this is the kind of response we see. Okay. Yeah, you're gonna you're, you're gonna see it. Yeah, exactly. You're gonna see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll pick up. We'll pick this up on uh, Thursday.
I'm sorry? Uh, the, you'll get them back uh, Friday in lab.